Hi, this is Pat Chung. Sorry, I've been on hiatus for a couple of months, but I'm back. The reason I've been gone so long is because I decided to produce a podcast conference here in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. And this has taken a lot more time than I expected, but I'm super excited about it. It's going to be a great intimate conference. We're going to have inspirational speakers, opportunities for attendees to actively participate, and we'll have activities to encourage attendees to connect with each other. Inspiration, participation, and connection are our three core values for this event, and it's going to be super fun. This event is called PodConf, so go check it out at podconf.com. That's P-O-D-C-O-N-F.com. Tickets right now are only $25, so grab them while they last. And come join us if you're in the area. Anyway, now we should be back to our normally scheduled programming for this podcast. So subscribe, listen, and again, enjoy the podcast. My podcast was listed in the Art of Manliness website, which was very big at the time. It's even bigger today. And when they had this list, I think it was like top 20 podcasts for men, which I thought was really funny. But they put my podcast on the bottom of that list. And my podcast numbers went right up, like immediately because of that mention. And my numbers went from like 4,000 the first month to like 12,000 the next month. Like it just really began to grow way faster than I expected. And so that was, that was, it was pretty sweet then. Hello, you're listening to Podcast Growth Hacks, where I talk to podcasters of all experience levels to unpack the most powerful growth tactics they used to grow their podcast. I'm Pat Chung. And if you're a podcaster, well then subscribe so that together we can all learn and experiment with how to grow our own podcasts. Today we are chatting with Jeff Sanders, the host of the 5AM Miracle Podcast. Jeff has been doing this podcast since 2013, almost 10 years, with over 480 episodes published. His podcasts have been nominated for seven podcast awards and exceeded 12 million downloads. Professionally, Jeff is a productivity coach, author, speaker, and founder of a productivity academy. And today he's going to share his journey of how he grew his podcast. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thanks, Pat. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Well, today I want to learn all you did to grow your podcast. But first, tell us a little bit about your podcast. What's it about? Sure. The 5A Miracle is at its core about early mornings and productivity. The bulk of the show, I discuss personal growth. I'll talk about healthy habits and ultimately how to get the most out of your time. So that's kind of what the show in a nutshell is about. It came from me uh, essentially waking up in my mid-20s late for work every day and being stressed out, tired. My mornings were just, they were a a source of stress for me. And I knew like, this is dumb. Like I should do things better. (laughs) And so I just basically reformatted my mornings and began to run before I went into the office. And that included a a. 5am wake up call. And from there, I realized like there's a lot of value to be extracted from just shifting your time in different ways. And so those experiments led to me blogging about it. And then later on, I launched the podcast to like really dig deeply into those things with an audio show. And it became something of its own. The show grew way faster than I expected. It became this like real central focus of my online presence. At the time, it was just a side hobby. I had a full-time job and I was just tinkering with these things. And then a few years later, I was laid off from that job and I took the podcast and my coaching business full-time. 
And the podcast has since been and always has been really the core of my marketing for my brand overall, because people know the show the most and it just leads back to all the things that I do. And so the show is central to my business, my life. That's what I focus on mostly. I love podcasting. I always have. So it's just continues to be that source of, of awesomeness, I guess, for what I do. That's cool. And it sounds like you were kind of dabbling with it for three years and you took the full dive into doing it full time. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, essentially, go really far back. My very first podcast was in 2008 and it was called Gibberish and it <laughs> lasted three episodes. And then my brother emailed me and he was like, why are you doing this? This is terrible. And so I quit the show immediately and I reformat and realized if I want to podcast well, I'm going to have to take some time to plan this stuff out and really do a you know, top-notch professional job. So it was about five years later that the 5A Miracle launched. And I spent a full year before that in preparation and planning mode. I was you know, studying other great podcasts. Mm. I was like reverse engineering what they were doing so that I could get myself into that seat of like, let's launch a good show on day one. But then for, yeah, probably at least two or three years of the show being live, I was just tinkering with what it could be before I was then full-time doing the show all the time as a, a real revenue source then later on with advertising. So yeah, it's always been an experiment. Every show is tinkering. I'm always trying new things. So to say like the show was tinkering in the beginning is true, but I'm always doing that. So it's just a constant source of how can I make this better all the time. That's cool. Totally get it. And a lot of people, when they first start their show, they have kind of imposter syndrome of like their subject matter. Were you a subject matter expert at that time or were you kind of just experimenting with your own life? Um, yes and no. I would say like in the world of personal growth, everyone is their own expert, right? It's, it's your own person. So for me, it was this sense of I had read a lot of books uh, at the time. I had run a bunch of marathons and a lot of my content at the time was directly based on you know, personal health and fitness and how can you read to improve your career and how can you really take yourself in a new direction based upon your own initiative to be a better person for yourself. Like it's personal growth is personal. So I felt like I had enough under my belt that I had made enough personal changes. I could discuss those experiments and discuss what I had done, but I never presented myself as an expert. It was more along mm. the lines of, I'm trying these things. I'm going to share what I'm doing. I'll share what works, what doesn't and why. And then I'll just continue that journey as it goes along. And here I am 10 years later after the show is launched and I'm still doing those same kinds of tests just at a whole new level of experimentation now. I love those journey type of podcasts. I guess I was just wondering, like, were you kind of like the slob on the couch that, <laughs> you know, started from ground zero, but you were already doing ultra marathon. So you, I think you did have some domain knowledge, I think. Yeah, I definitely had some, some experience here. I wasn't, you know, 600 pounds and trying to reform right. my life, but I was also a guy in his mid twenties is trying to figure things out. So it wasn't mm -hmm. as if I was a genius. It was more along the lines of, I was really passionate about a lot of these topics. And so for me to be able to share those, it was a lot of fun in terms of how can I get my experiences out into the world to share as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And what's really weird is that I've gone back and listened to my first episodes. I hate them. They're so bad. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know how that show did well in the beginning. Cause it's just, I'm such in such a different place today. But the core of who I was then is still who I am today. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I present that information in a different and better way today. And when you say did well, um, what were you kind of measuring that made you think, all right, this is the time to jump in, you know, full bore. When I was blogging, I had probably at the time it was a hundred, 200, maybe uh, like regular uh, subscribers to my newsletter. So it was a very small, like entry level blog, just trying to get things off the ground. Mm -hmm. 
the first month of my podcast, I got 4,000 downloads. Oh, wow. And I was like, I just got more interaction one month of this podcast than I have from the entirety, entire history of my blog. And so there was this immediate attraction to this thing is doing way better than what I've ever done before. So let's just ramp that up. And so that's why I, I took podcast growth more seriously in the beginning because mm -hmm. I saw that as a potential to go somewhere, which is why it's been the core of my business ever since, because that's been the thing that always draws people back in. And so, yeah, those numbers in the beginning were enough for me to say, I can do something here. I mean, 4,000 is amazing numbers. Do you remember how you got that during the first month? So Apple Podcasts, which was iTunes back in the, in the day, iTunes at the time was like the primary source to get podcasts. Like, mm -hmm. yes, you could get podcasting somewhere else, but no one really knew of other podcast directories at the time. And so when I launched my show, I was competing against significantly fewer podcasts than there are today. And I think that the way that my show came across, maybe just because I had done a lot of research up front to like make the show, the, the format good and you know the audio quality as good as I could. I think the show had a chance to succeed as it competed against other big name shows. And I got mentioned this is early on, probably month two of the show. Uh, my podcast was listed in the Art of Manliness website, which was very big at the time. It's even bigger today. And when they had this list, I think it was like top 20 podcasts for men which I thought was really funny, but they put my podcast on the bottom of that list and my podcast numbers went right up like immediately because of that mention. And I was also surprised by just, if you can get your show, this is part of my whole marketing strategy, if you can get your name, your podcast, your brand onto bigger you know, audiences mm -hmm. that are related to your content, well, you get incredible exposure and that just is a, an immediate growth opportunity for your show. And I saw that right away. My numbers went from like 4,000 the first month to like 12,000 the next month. Like it just wow. really began to grow way faster than I expected. And so that was, that was, it was pretty sweet then. That is cool. And was that something accidental or did you actually reach out to the art of manliness? <laughs> there was a shocking amount of accidental growth. Um, <laughs> I would love to say that I'm a, a marketing genius, but uh, mm. no. I think that the one thing that has always been true about what I've done is I have focused on making a phenomenal show for whatever level I'm at, at the time, right? Best content, best audio quality, like present the show in the best way that I can. That's been my focus. You know, it's kind of the build it and they will come, you know, mm -hmm. philosophy, which generally speaking is not a good idea. It doesn't work. <laughs> Marketing is important. Um, but I think that I hit the timing really great in terms of podcasting was about to take off at that point. iTunes was very popular. My show was competing on just a few key lists that got exposure to it. And so like, even today, 85% of my podcast audience is still from Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm. So Spotify hardly exists for me. Other directories are very small. Whereas most new shows that are doing well, Spotify is the number one place they get their downloads from. So like my audience is still in the Apple ecosystem. So I just, I hit the algorithm well when it comes to that system at the time. And I've ridden that wave ever since, really. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of growth today, what do you do today besides just being on Apple? I mean, is there's nothing you could really do after being on Apple, right? Well, like, <laughs> being on Apple is not a, not really a marketing <laughs> yeah. tactic. It's yeah. just I hit it well at the time. Right. What I did in the first probably two to three years of the show was to put a, I put a lot of energy into being a guest in other podcasts like I'm doing here today. And I would focus on shows that were similar to mine. So ones where I could you know present my message, talk about my philosophy of these things. 
And that was growing my show very quickly. People are discovering me because I was on other shows that they liked already and trusted those hosts. Mm -hmm. And that brought in a lot of, of listeners for me from there. And then later on, I began to see my podcast listed on these like top 10 lists, like top 10 best productivity podcasts and my show would be there. Well, then that's been happening consistently ever since. And now my show tends to be on all those lists. <laughs> like, I'm not asking for that. Right. I think that happened because uh, some people wrote some of those lists and included my name and people just regurgitate those lists and it's on more of them, right. which is also helpful. But like a lot of what I've done is I start the ball rolling. Like I do mm -hmm. activities that generate some attention, some, you know, some interest. And then yeah. from there, things can not go viral necessarily, but have that same sense of, it will catch on and people will, it will share it more and it will reach more people. So right. my intention was always get my name out there, get my face out there, get myself onto these shows that I think my best audience will come from. Right. So you did a uh, podcast guesting in the earlier years. So are you still doing that today? Is that still one of your primary tactics? It is a lot less important to me today, although it should be more important. <laughs> sure. So essentially my show grew really well in this first few years. And then it leveled off and it has stayed basically leveled off for a while. And for me to get to the next level up, I'm going to have to put in more of that same effort. So that's okay. going to come from guesting again. Uh, cross promotions are going to be big for me going forward um, because there's a lot of opportunities for me now to leverage dynamic ads, which I now have in my system, which gives me a lot of potential to do feed drops or dynamic ad swaps or lots of opportunities to connect with other podcasters who have similar systems and then all of a sudden we can get more exposure a lot faster so that is my focus going forward sure how much are you focusing on numbers right now i mean do you ever get at a place where you're like oh this is pretty good let's coast for a while <laughs> well the last few years with covid plus me having two babies in the middle of covid <laughs> my focus has not been on podcasts sure, <laughs> sure. and other things but going forward i mean yes i have kind of coasted. I have got to a place in the last few years where I thought I can sit here for a little while. Um, I have an agency that sells ads for me. And so for the most part, as long as I'm producing solid content on a weekly basis, they sell the ads, I get the revenue and it's okay, right? It's mm -hmm. not great. It's not terrible. It's like in a good place. Um, I want to do much more than that though. So my question then for myself is always, what am I going to do to get me to the next level up? I think right. that part of that strategy will definitely include being interviewed in other similar shows. It'll be the cross promotion, podcast ad swaps, feed drops. Like that's going to be a focus for me that because I want to grow the show. I want it to right. be a bigger audience because um, I know that there are shows similar to mine that get three times my numbers. So yeah. I know the opportunity is there. It's just a question of will I go get it? Sure. Yeah. And let's talk since you brought up the ad agency and sponsors. Let's talk about that a little bit. I noticed sure. you do have ads on your show. When did you first start getting your first sponsors? I started back in 2016. So the show is, yeah, three years old um, when I brought on my first sponsors. And this came from a, a companies that emailed me and asked to sponsor the show. Um, right. So at that point, I hadn't even attempted to do it. And so when a first, a few companies asked about that, um, I did some very terrible baked in ads that I was just <laughs> testing the water, see how it would do. And what I found was it was pretty easy to do so. It wasn't a ton of work on my end. And it, it produced, at the, at the time, I thought it was pretty good money. But I make much more now than I did back then because I've got better systems, bigger numbers, you know, everything kind of scales up. But it, it really piqued my interest that like I'm already podcasting anyway. If I could just have some sponsors for the show, it beefs up the business in a really profound way. So I sold my own ads for probably a year. Uh, I'd, you know, I'd find companies that are already sponsoring other podcasts and I would email them directly to mm -hmm. get them on the show. 
and oh, so you did your well. own outreach. Yeah, I did my own outreach, my own negotiations, um, which I will tell you is a lot of work. Yeah. That aspect is a job. And mm -hmm. so I was looking at how much money I was making and kind of going, it's fine, but you could probably have a regular 40 hour week day job and make more than I'm making <laughs> trying to hustle to make this thing yeah. happen. So there is a, a sense of trying to balance like how much am I actually making versus how much work am I really putting in and does that add up? And so for me, it became obvious that an agency would solve a lot of those problems because they take on average a 30% cut and so you get 70% of the money, but they do all the legwork. They find the sponsors, they negotiate the contracts, they deal with all the back end. you know, here's your free sample, here's all this stuff, all the ad copy, they do all of that. So I basically just read the copy and get the check which is hmm. a lot easier than my previous, you know, all the hustle, all the negotiation, yeah. all the sales, which could be an exhausting process. And I want to dive pretty deep into the ad agency and the contract and how that kind of looks like and how do you even get that. But when was it you decided to go to the agency? Was it after like a year or two of selling your own ads or? After about a year of selling my own ads, there was an agency that pitched me and I said yes. And so I found another agency to work with. This case, it was AdvertiseCast, which is now owned by Libsyn. And, and they did a really good job for probably two years I worked with them. Um, and then I had an opportunity to go to the company I'm with now, which is True Native Media. And I'm doing exclusively dynamic ads with them, which is now the best system I've ever had. So between their sales team and using dynamic ads, the structure that's now in place is one where I have a lot of control and flexibility over not just the companies I choose to use, but how they get in, into the show, you know, do we pre-rolls and mid-rolls, we change the dates, you know, whenever we want to, there's a lot of power that before was kind of clunky because baked in ads have to be recorded with the episode and the timing gets kind of goofy, but dynamic is just so flexible and I can do things far in advance and I can batch record my episodes. It's just, there's so much to be said about how that structural change changed my entire podcast flow. So it's been pretty awesome. That's interesting. Uh, and there's so much to unpack here. So what made you change from AdvertiseCast to True Native then? Um, so essentially the way that ad agencies work that I have seen, and this is kind of a, I think a pretty well-known thing, is that when you are a part of an agency, you're not their only client. Mm -hmm. And so every agency is going to have their priorities. And sometimes sales for your show won't be what you want them to be which I've seen across the board with lots of different companies, lots of different you know, opportunities. So it's not to say advertised cast is a bad uh, agency. They're not. They're actually really great. Um, but I think I got to a point where I wanted to make some changes and it wasn't going to work for how their sales team was operating at the time. And they actually got bought out by Libsyn right at the time this was happening. So there may have been some you know, leadership changes that caused some of these issues that caused me to say, you know what, now's a good time for me to, to find somewhere else to mm -hmm. go. It doesn't mean I wouldn't go back to them. It just means that it was time for me to find a better company. Right. So, I guess the reason why I'm asking this is if there's listeners that are kind of right now might be thinking about joining an ad agency, I'm wondering what they should be looking out for. Like, is it, is it something like the fill rate? Were they not filling enough of your Yeah, essentially, or? like I had at the time, I think it was four mid-roll spots that were in my inventory. So I, I was willing to sell up to four mid-roll spots. Mm -hmm. um, I, no pre-rolls, no post-rolls, just simply four ads in the middle. And there just weren't enough sales. Like it just wasn't ever reaching enough for it to be worth staying exclusive. Because the, the issue with all these, the biggest agencies is you are exclusive to them. So they're the only ones who can sell ads for you, which poses a problem over time if they don't sell those spots because they're the only ones who are allowed to. Mm -hmm. 
And so you're kind of locked in. And if they don't do their job, that's it. Like it just doesn't happen. And so Interesting. It's one, are you not allowed to sell your own spots while you're with an agency? So it depends on the contract. Most of them will say that you can sell your own spots, but they get their cut still. So, so you're allowed to find your own sponsors and bring them in all you want, but they're mm-hmm. going to take their commission <laughs> okay. along with it. So it really comes into play with how much of your time do you want to spend on ads? How important mm-hmm. is the revenue to your business and your brand? It's not always the easiest thing. The most popular shows, like the ones that you hear about all the time, they have more sponsors than to do with. Like they're mm-hmm. turning people away. Yeah. I'm not in that place. Never have been. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's maybe I'll get there at some point. That'd be awesome. But really comes down to, you know, can you negotiate a balance here between what is coming in and what you hope to bring from the show or what you need to come in to pay your bills? Like, it, and if it doesn't work, for most podcasters, ad revenue is never going to be significant enough to really like, I'm going to stake my mortgage <laughs> payment on this one. Like, that's not really how it operates for most podcasters. So it really comes down to how critical is this money? And I would never stake your business on podcast ad revenue because these things fluctuate so much. Mm-hmm. It's more of, you know, I have a primary business model. And here's the revenue from that. And then I happen to make ad money for my show. And that's nice. Right. I think that's a, a more appropriate response for most podcasters. Right. That makes sense. And did you approach True Native or did they approach you? Uh, they approached me a couple of times, actually. I turned them down a few times before I ended up <laughs> saying yes. So that, that really comes down to you want to find a company that's a good fit for your focus, what their focus is and who they pitch um, and, and how those things work together. Because it really is a relationship because you're going to work with them every week right. talking about sponsors and communication is a huge thing. And if, if you can't find a good resonation there with them, it doesn't really work long term. Right. And when you were doing your research, do you think about their category? I think you have a pretty general category of like productivity mm-hmm. and self-help. Yep. You know, is it advisable to think about that all? Or like, are there different networks for different types of categories? Oh, yes. There are definitely, there are networks and agencies that specialize in these certain areas. There's one, an agency I pitched before, I think it was HubSpot, that has a much more exclusive network and they also sell ads for their shows on that network, but it's very business focused. And my podcast is not that business focused. It sometimes is. But for for those to work well, if you fit in those categories well and you get into those networks and those agencies, it could be really profitable because they're so targeted and they find the best sponsors. And that to me is the ideal. Like you're really looking for a really solid connection. If you, like my show is more generic. And so mm-hmm. I end up with much more generic sponsors, which is both good and bad. It's good because there's more companies willing to say yes. Mm-hmm bad because then the fit is not always great right. and so it, it never like really clicks like i would like for it to so you have to play that game as far as is your podcast super focused or is it more general and then knowing how that affects which kinds of sponsors you'll attract or won't and speaking of fit and how, how does it work like logistically i guess some sales agent at true native works directly with you and then do they just present you like a monthly list of all the potential sponsors and then you green light them or but what's happened most, I think for all agencies I've worked with before, what they tend to do is they will, they'll be approached by a company who wants to buy ads or they will pitch out a company and try to ask them to come into the network. And then when, let's say BetterHelp, which is the biggest ad sponsor in podcasting right now, True Native would then say, hey, BetterHelp, we have 12 podcasts we think are a really good fit for you. And then BetterHelp would review those 12 shows and pick the ones they want. And if mine happens to be one of them, then I'll get a contract through there. And before that process happens, when True Native is trying to filter out which shows should we pitch, they'll send out an email 
and they'll say, hey, here's the sponsor. Here's the amount of money they're looking you know, to, to buy ads with. Here's more about the company. And then you simply like review it and say yes or no. Like this mm -hmm. is a good fit for my show or not. So I'm individually approving sponsors ahead of time mm -hmm. to make sure it's always a good fit for my brands. And, and that process is pretty smooth. Got it. And generally, you know how many ad slots that would fill per episode. So they'll buy by impressions, and so the which is similar to downloads but different. So in the world of dynamic ads, impressions means that someone actually heard that ad, right. as opposed to a download, which could just fill your computer full of files and never look at them at all. Like <laughs> that's I moved from the system of downloads and embedded ads to dynamic insertion. You know, embedded things that are so much more. It's more fickle because you, you expect the listener to actually listen, yeah. but that also means that when the sponsor says like, oh, well, Jeff's show got, for example, 90,000 impressions on this ad, that's a good thing because it means we've had like 90,000 potential you know, ears on this ad, so they're getting more value from that, and I can also sell my entire back catalog to them, so I'm not just selling the mm -hmm. most recent episodes for the last you know, four weeks or something. I'm selling the entire entirety of all my episodes at once. So that's a lot of exposure. Yeah. And to run dynamic ads, there's a lot of operations to take care of. Did you have to do all that stuff or do they help you with that? Well, my hosting company, Art19, uh, they have a very robust system for dynamic ads. And what the way it tends to work with them, I was on Megaphone before. Art19 is rock solid. They have a, a phenomenal system and their team will basically do anything you ask them to do. So <laughs> if you're confused, which I was a lot in the beginning, I would just say like, hey, Art19, like I have this sponsor. They want to do, you know, 90,000 impressions for this certain date range on this podcast for this mid-roll for this rate. And they're like, got it. And they'll just fill the whole thing out for you. I learned how to do it myself and I now do it on my own. Um, but in the beginning, it was just, I would just like, hey, I have no clue what I'm doing. Please do it yeah. for me. And they would. And they um, did, because you, you would theoretically have well, like hundreds of episodes that you have to So I, I did all the mid-roll insertion points. I inserted those ads, so I know all the, those points are placed by me. Once that part's done, everything else is pretty straightforward. Like Once okay. you understand the lingo and you understand what you're doing, it's actually not that complicated, but it can become complicated because the most high-end sponsors, like if you see a TV ad, for example, and you live in Toronto, you're getting ads targeted to Toronto. Like it's not just mm -hmm. like some generic company, like they're ads that someone said, like, I want age 18 to 24 men who will, you know, like to drink soda. Here we go in this certain city. Like it can get really specific. Mine, I have the potential to do all of that. And I do very little mm -hmm. uh, because I don't, I don't want to touch the complication of what that could be. <laughs> okay. uh, but the general nature of I can be more specific. I have a lot of control over who hears the ad and when and why. That's really powerful. And I really love that. Yeah, that's cool. Speaking of ad agency, uh, are you with a network too? That's a little bit different, right? If you join a network. Networks are different. I'm not a part of one. I never have been. Um, I've considered it in the past, but networks are a little bit different because in some ways you give up control, like, kind of like you do with an agency where mm -hmm. You know, there are rules about the network as far as how they operate, what ads they'll allow you to bring in. In some cases, the networks control the ads. Other cases, they don't. For me, it's never seemed to make sense because I'm a control freak. It's like I like to have all the things in front of me. Uh -huh. Like I'm, I code my own website because I just want to know like every little pixel. Um, and I'm not even a coder. I just I, I taught myself how to do the things I care about, which is basically everything. So that's just my nature, which is. I think it's allowed me to create a show that I want in a very specific way. But for most podcasters, 
it's overkill. And now it's unnecessary in most cases because you can get pre-built systems that do all these things for you that look even better than what mine do now. And so you get better in results anyway. Right. I guess I'm asking about network because uh, it sounds like you're about to embark in this next sort of uh, phase of growth where you're going to do cross promotions. And mm. I think that's when networks kind of come into play, right? From what I understand, ad agencies, they only try to sell your ads. They don't help you grow at all, right? That is true. The only slight difference there is that recently with True Native, so they have a categorization basically on like, here are all the podcasts we represent that do productivity, for example. Mm -hmm. And so in True Native, they have, I think, seven shows that are very similar to mine. And so one thing that we've done is a couple of Zoom calls together with those podcast hosts to talk about cross-promotion. Oh, and so okay. that will be a focus for me is to work with those podcasters who I already know are using my same agency. We already have a similar system. We're already doing dynamic ads. So I already have basically pre-approved these people and I know that they're a good fit. And so it's just a question of how do we negotiate a good cross-promotion strategy among each other? And I feel like that's an opportunity. It's kind of like a mini network in and of itself. Right. So they are running their own in-house ads um, across their own network. of. Yeah. So my intention with all of that, I've done one so far where I did a cross promotion with another show. And so in that sense, we did feed drops. And so he had uh, probably a three minute like trailer on my show and I had a similar mm -hmm. one on his. And that works pretty well. And those kinds of opportunities are interesting because you get a lot of exposure to the audience in a way that you wouldn't otherwise accept. My one kind of beef with that is interviews like this one are exponentially more powerful. Like mm -hmm. ads don't even compete at all with right. a full episode where you get to know someone's personality. And you talk about these things like that blows away what an ad would do or if, even right. a feed drop to that degree. But, you know, more exposure is more exposure. Yeah, so sure. you look for ways to cross promote every way you can. Yeah. And with the feed drop, are you actually baking it in or are you using the dynamic ad? So in that um, case, well, you could do either way. Um, you could do it dynamically where it's dropped in and then removed, or you could add it to your feed and then remove it 30 days later and just delete it. So it kind of depends on the, the way you play it there. How do you do it? I tend to add it into the feed and remove it manually later. Um, I have more control over that. Right, right. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but tell me about your other income sources around the podcast. I noticed you have this thing called the Rockin' Productivity Academy. Yeah, so the Academy I launched, I think it was probably four or five years ago now, it basically you know, came from the fact that I had the podcast. Well, actually, let's go back even further. So I had the blog, launched the podcast a few years later. About 18 months into the show, I got approached by a book publisher to do a book about the podcast and the content of that. So my very first published book called The 5A Miracle, same name as the show, um, that became kind of the, I don't know, the foundational content for everything else I produced. Mm. So I used the book and the podcast as a foundation for launching the video course-based academy. And so it's a lot of similar content, but presented in a different way with a more exclusive audience. And so the academy is basically a deeper dive into that same content, but more video course-focused. I'm still doing interviews and explaining lots of concepts, but just you know video-based. And then I launched my second book, The Free Time Formula. So I have those two published books plus the academy. And all of that content is very closely linked to the podcast. So Got it. The podcast is really like the core and then these the books and the courses kind of stem from that. I also additionally do coaching and speaking engagements, which also are similar, but those tend to be more customized for the client and customized for what they want. But the show, the books and the course are all really like this is the 5A Miracle Core content. Right. That's super interesting. Actually, let's talk about the book a little bit. Uh, what was the motive for the book? Was it 
for the direct income of book sales or was it more for authority building or maybe both? Technically both, but for me, it was definitely a thought. I never thought that would make money from the book. <laughs> Fortunately, I've made some money. It wasn't like it, it did poorly. It definitely made me some money. But the number one thing it's done for me is to really put that stamp on my brand saying I'm a published author. But to be mm -hmm. able to put that in the resume and say that, it, it says a lot. And I've always told people since I have published that book, that if you don't have a publisher, just go self-publish immediately. Go write a book and get it out there because that is such a powerful thing. Even today, years later, when everyone can be a podcaster, everyone can be an author, but most people don't put the work in to do it. And if you do it, you have that resume builder. You have yeah. that also in the an awesome business card that you can use for whatever it is you're selling or promoting or working on. A, a book is a very powerful statement like that. Yeah, I agree to some extent, but just to play devil's advocate a little bit. I feel like in the world of self-publishing, it feels a little watered down. Like you're right, as an authority builder, when a publisher believes in you, like in your story, it feels like there's a lot more validity to it. Do you really think the uh, self-publisher ad is a good way to go? The thing about the publisher is that the reader doesn't usually know or care. Uh, what I've seen is that my readers don't have any idea if the book was self-published or not. Um, in fact, my first book, The 5A Miracle, is paperback only, and it looks like I made it on a Word document, like back in the <laughs> 80s. Like I told my publisher this to their face that I hate the cover. Like I flagrantly hate it, and uh -huh. I told them this, and they didn't care. Whatever. So that it was their choice because I gave my rights away, and they got to choose, which is kind of my whole point of being a control freak. Like I have repeatedly given away my control to people who have then made terrible decisions, mm -hmm. and but I've had to work with that. Yeah. Versus my second book, which was published by Wiley, which is a much bigger publisher, much bigger name, hardcover book, looks beautiful, love the presentation of it. And the book sales were terrible. And it was like the whole thing, <laughs> it, it's not about the publisher or even yeah. the beautiful cover. Like it has to be a connection with the audience. And if you're presenting really good information in a way that they want to consume it, nobody cares if it was self-published or not. They just want the book and the content to be helpful for them. And that's it. And I've played that game of like, oh, look at me. I got published by this big, awesome company. My audience didn't care at all. Like it yeah. wasn't important to them. Like they just wanted to be helped. I didn't help them enough. It wasn't good enough. So that's the challenge. No, that's a good tip. I appreciate that. So it sounds like you have a bunch of different income streams. You have coaching, you have the academy, you have the sponsorships. What's on the top? Like what's the biggest money maker for you? It fluctuates quite a bit uh, year mm -hmm. to year. At present, right now, my podcast ads are actually bigger than the other areas. That tends to change basically quarterly. Uh, these things fluctuate quite a bit. So going forward, the focus is going to be more on my academy and on online courses. That was my best one in 2021. So it kind of it bounces back and forth quite a bit on okay. what I focus on. Speaking was a real big deal for me before COVID. Then COVID hit and that whole thing took a huge nosedive. <laughs> so most of what I do now is going to be online based. So online courses and coaching, it has also been a real staple in all of that too, which is usually pretty easy to do. You can do it virtually. People can validate your expertise based upon the contents already out there. So yeah, yeah, I find that to be a good one as well. And with all this stuff you do, you see the podcast as a hub, right? Oh, yes, it is. It's the central thing because it's the thing people know me for. So if I'm going to tell somebody what I do for a living, I tell them I'm a podcaster mm, first. Okay. I, I, everything else I ignore. Like, I'm a podcaster. That's what I do. And then they listen to the show. If they like it, they discover everything else right away. Yeah. And so it works out fine. That's a really good tip because I think that's the confusing part I hear from a lot of podcasters. It's like, 
is the podcast just an addendum to all the other stuff they're doing or is that the core hub? Um, so mm. for you, it sounds like it's the core hub. Um, how do you juggle all these things? There's so many things going on. The juggling aspect can either be totally fine if you like subdue all your projects and really like, like recently I've done that. I've really taken things down a huge notch so I don't get overwhelmed because my story, which I actually explain in my second book was that I burned myself out and mm. I had panic attacks. And I had this whole series that lasted for probably a year and a half where I was doing everything, right? All these things you just listed, I was actively working on all of them at one point in time, and it was too much, like mm -hmm. very clearly too much. Mm -hmm. The strategy I've employed since then, which is way smarter and healthier, is it's one thing at a time, right? Everything is going to happen over time, but you only do one thing at a time. And my focus is always that question of what am I giving my energy to right now? And how do I automate the rest so it can just sit in the sidelines while I focus on one thing? And that has helped a ton, even in terms of my podcast recording now, I batch record my episodes. So I'll mm -hmm. do all of them all at once for about a four week period. I'll do in three days, record all of them at once. And then the rest of the month, then I shift to my next project. And it's one thing at a time, which keeps my stress levels down and keeps productivity still super high. And so it really is just a question of how do you want to scale uh, your time to make sure that you're organizing these things in a way that you can do one thing at a time and automate the rest in the process. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of um, batching your podcasts, I noticed a lot of them are solo, but you have interviews too. When do you decide, let's stick in an interview? And What's interesting about that is, is that I did probably 250 some odd interviews in the first seven to eight years of the show. So it was just lots of interviews all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. every other episode was an interview. Um, and my goal initially was to alternate. So solo show episode and then interview mm -hmm. and back and forth. Interviews burn me out after a while. I, I ran into this point where it is a lot of legwork to schedule these interviews, to record them, to edit them, to polish it together with your content, to have the show notes page with their bio and the links. And like, guys, to this whole thing of like, I'm putting a lot of energy into these guests and the downloads are not any better or worse than the ones I do by myself, hmm. which I can do in half the time. Right. And so a year ago, so this is 20, the late 2021, I shifted to solo only for a full year. My goal is to do just my own content and really establish myself once again as the expert of my own content and mm -hmm. as the host of my own show. Like I want to be very clear that like this is Jeff Sanders stuff. Here it comes. Right. Which worked out great for me because it really it forced me to be a better content creator and a better podcast host. And I can make content on my own now so efficiently. So batching works beautifully for that. I'm now tinkering with bringing back a few guests here and there, but it's still those same problems I had before are still there. You know, whether it's bad audio quality from the guest or whether it's just a clunky interview I didn't really like doing, like all these things kind of play into my head of like, <laughs> do I actually like this? Is this what I really want to do? Which I think is important, yeah. right? To reassess sure. like, where am I now? And to focus on what resonates with you now. And if it doesn't resonate, then just let it sit in the sidelines for a while. Bring it back later if you want, which I've been more intentional about in my life, which I'm glad I'm doing that because I have no intention of doing things I don't enjoy. Like, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. No, that's good insight. And it's something, you know, I'm asking that question because I'm wrestling with it right now. I just started doing some solo episodes and I thought, wow, that's that's pretty enjoyable. And then when I think about um, interviews, I think I just didn't realize how hard they were, like you said. Like, mm. I love talking to people. I don't want to yeah. stop doing that. I love kind of picking their brain and learning from their expertise. But there's something like I had to learn all about your life, quite honestly, for a couple right. hours before. I know. <laughs> and it's just time consuming. Like, I know yes. a lot about Jeff Sanders now. And I had to take a couple hours to dive deep. And I think a lot of podcasters, they don't think about that in the beginning. 
Well, it's not just a conversation that lasts for 30 minutes, right? It, it's all the legwork before and after that plays into it. This is for me, you know, as a guy that does productivity, like this is, it's always a question of ROI, which means like how much time did I actually spend on this episode? You know, there's one interview for this mm-hmm. one person, you know, from scheduling to recording, to editing, to researching, when it's all added together, is it eight hours of your week? Is it 50 hours? Like, what are you doing? And then does that add up for the kind of time you want to spend? And for me, if the answer is not a clear yes, then it's a clear no. And I walk away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's a good framework. I like that. And speaking of ROI, you, you know, you talked about going to focus on one or two things a little bit more deeply. Yep. What is going to be the one or two thing in 2023? The initial goal that I have, the, actually the first one we discussed earlier, which is podcast marketing. I think mean, one of the things I definitely want to do is the cross promotion aspect mm-hmm. of growing the show primarily because I already have dynamic ads as a system that's established. Mm-hmm. And so if I can, it's kind of the question of like, what's, where's the easiest revenue going to come from right. and to scale the show up is going to be a lot less legwork than to begin a thing from scratch. So focus number one is build the show. The second thing I want to do is publish my next book. And I want to do that with a self-published model, which our, our friend David Hooper loves to do. And that's, I know a lot of people who do it and I have never fully done it in a professional way. And mm-hmm. that's the thing I'm really curious about. So I definitely want that to be probably my biggest focus of the year. And then from there, leveraging online courses to pair with that book as the online model to sell more of the back end opportunity there. Got it. So creating that whole system around the next book launch. And what do you think is going to be the difference between self-publishing for you versus having a publisher? The real difference is control from all of the angles, everything from the title of the book to the cover design, to the interior layout. Marketing is always on you, regardless of the publisher, because they don't do any marketing at all. So really it's about the presentation of the book. That's been a surprise to me, by the way, that they don't do any marketing. That's the worst news that every new author learns and they hate it because they're just like, wait a minute, you're not going to do anything. And they're like, no, nothing. So, yeah. just, so what are they doing? Own. They're just basically helping you put this physical book together. Is that the main back thing? in the day, like let's say like 30, 40 years ago, if you were a published author, it was a significant thing because very few people could actually become published authors. Like there was a, a gatekeeper and people had to approve you to do this because they were going to invest in you. So if you were an author back in the I don't know, early eighties, they mm-hmm. would not only like help you to produce the book, but they would market for you. Like that was part of the deal. Right. But because of the internet, because of the ability for people like me to have a podcast and a blog and an online presence, the publishers now expect you to bring your own audience. They expect you to have 100,000 right. Instagram followers. They expect you to have a huge email list. And if you, if you bring that to them, then they're happy to work with you. They want to promote you. They might actually invest marketing dollars in you because the ROI is now significant. But for me, they looked at my audience and they're like, good luck, buddy. Like sell on your own. <laughs> and which is not fun to hear. Yeah. Cool. And did they at least give you an advance or? Uh, did, yeah, did I got advances, print? which was helpful just to cover costs while I was doing the writing and you know, making the book put together. But ultimately, all they're doing is taking what I wrote, they'll print it and then deliver it. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the end of it. Um, wow. My first book, I got lucky in the sense that they did a really good job with international translations. And so I've actually made more money on international sales than I have on domestic U.S. sales, which I didn't expect. But that's only because that company actually did the effort to put that out there. Second one did not. So it's, you know, more, more control means you can do these things on your own, too. Yeah. And where are you on your book journey right now for the new book? Just getting started. Just I've now. got I've been collecting ideas forever, and I'm really just in that, that tough zone of 
what kind of time schedule do I have to do the writing? Because the way I've done my books in the past, both of them are written before I had kids. So I've got this whole new like <laughs> angle of how do I schedule the time to write the book to make it happen, which I can figure that out. It's not, it's just a question of doing it, but it's really for me, like I like to do things in huge batches. Like yeah. my best kind of writing comes from like four to five hours of nothing but writing. I can't do it in 20 minutes here or there. Nothing's mm -hmm. gonna happen. If I get a good four hour block, multiple days in a row, multiple weeks in a row. Um, I mean, my last book, I wrote the entire thing in nine weeks, start to oh, finish. Wow. Mm -hmm. Most people take months or years and I was done in two months. And that was, and then that's the way that I tend to be creative also is in these big batches. I spill it all out there and then I walk away. And that's how I prefer to do most projects. Got it. And I love talking to productivity people. So this is like kind of the perfect question for you along the lines of how are you going to get this done? Are you setting yourself a timeline to have it written by? Yeah. So what I'll, what I'll probably end up doing, I think in the past, I gave myself three months on, on both my books to write the thing start to finish. But this next one, I'm going to need six months because my schedule is not as, as you know, in control as it used to be. <laughs> but I think a six month time frame, generally speaking, is plenty of time if you set milestones along the way. So I work really well with just like these mini goals that'll happen. So I want to have the first chapter done in the first two weeks and second chapter in the next two weeks and like really be specific about the organization. Because when I do my books, I will spend probably half the writing time just in organizing what I want to say and when. And then the last half is when I actually write it out. So mm -hmm. I will spend a ton of time planning because the planning is the book. Like that's what right. defines the do you understand what you're trying to say elements? Right. And then so saying when you say it, it's planning, it's like outlining or clustering? Yeah, so ex extremely detailed outlining. Like here are the different parts, here are the mm -hmm. chapters, here are their titles, here are the sub, you know, subtopics I want to discuss, here are the bullet points I want to mention. It's all that breakdown so that I, I can look at the outline and see the book. Like I know mm -hmm. exactly what it'll be once I have all the words attached to them. Right. That approach totally makes sense. I kind of do that myself in my own personal writing. I wonder, I mean, you're a control freak. I wonder if you could just give the outline to a ghostwriter. Have you ever considered maybe doing oh, that? Or? Totally could. But really for me, it's a question of like, can I get my voice to my listener or my reader? Because mm -hmm. one thing that's defined my brand is me mm -hmm. and people tune into my show because they like me for who I am. And if I give up that control, like that's when I get frustrated. And I think the listener or reader or viewer consumer does also because they know it's not me. They can see mm -hmm. there's a disconnect. And if I'm going to sell what I view as the best part of my business, which in a personal brand, that's the person, it's me. I want that to come through. And if it doesn't, then I have to go fix that. Right, right. That's interesting. And once again, having a productivity coach, I should ask the question, when you batch your episodes, when you mean batch, do you literally finish each episode from beginning to end? So the schedule, I actually revamped the schedule just recently. And the way that I'm doing it now is, I will do four episodes in three days. And that means start to finish. It means mm. script the episode out, record it, post-production editing, upload to my podcast host. It's done. Like oh, those wow. steps are all completed in the, that time frame. What I discovered, which I think is it's Parkinson's law, which is, you know, the work expands the time allotted. If you mm. give yourself six hours to record, you'll spend six hours recording. Give yourself mm. 35 minutes, you're done in 35 minutes. And so I'm, I'm much more intentional now about having very strict time boundaries around what the work is. And it's very specific. It's like, okay, for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to write the script for this episode here. And then for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to write the next script, the next episode. And then four hours later, all the scripts are done. Like all the planning is completed. 
Then the next day, it's the same process, only now for 45 minutes, I'm going to record this episode. When the next block begins, I go in the next one. And it's just keeping myself moving, just like Got click, it. click, click, don't stop. The, for most people, time efficiency really breaks down between tasks. Most people, when they mm. finish something, all of a sudden they're distracted. They're on Facebook, they're going to the bathroom and doing the laundry, <laughs> like they're off in la la land. If you can really move from one thing to the next quickly, you'll get it all done. And just it, that's it, it's over. Um, and I love that process. It's so awesome to start and then finish a few hours later and know I got a ton of stuff done. It's yeah. a great feeling. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to try that. I like your tip about like even within the batch, there's even smaller sub batches of like you mm. do this task first, you do it three times, move on to the next task and you do it a couple of times. Yes. Well, batching is not just doing a lot of work at once. It's similar in nature. So mm -hmm. all the scripting is done at the same time, all the recording at the same time, all the post-production editing at the same time. So it's not one episode start to finish, then the next one start to finish. Right. It is all of them scripting, all of them recording, all of them editing. That makes sense. So you, your mind doesn't have to context switch, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit more about the group. And I noticed you even have a Facebook group. I was listening to one of your episodes and I think your call to action was a Facebook group. Is mm -hmm. that part of the academy or is that something different? So there's the 5 a.m. Miracle community group on Facebook, which is is the biggest group that I have that's public. So that has about 11,000 members and that's open to anybody who finds the link. Really, it's just like an open community to anybody who knows where it is. I do have other private Facebook groups for members of the Academy or those who have read the book. So there are smaller ones there as well. But the big one really is that kind of the larger group where anybody who loves early mornings can go on up. <laughs> And what do you think about the Facebook group? I mean, do you recommend people start a Facebook group? How much work do you put into that? Back when I first launched it, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Today, it's almost useless. Mm. And I say that because Facebook has killed groups. They've changed the algorithms to such a degree that if I want my audience to see something that I posted, I have to pay for it. Like it's no longer, you can't just put up a poll and have your, let's say 10,000 members of the group actually see that poll. Unless they're intentionally going out of their way to go to the group and look at the content, mm -hmm. they're not gonna see it in their feed. They're not gonna be notified about it. It's not gonna show up. And so it's really a question of how passionate are your users? I'm in, I'm in a few Facebook groups that are very active, but these are people who are just like super obsessed with this topic. But even that, it's only a subset of the group that are super active. Everyone else is just not there at all. And so it really is a question of what's the most effective way to engage with your listeners, your consumers, your clients. And I have found the Facebook group to be super clunky over the years. It was really great. And now mm -hmm. I just find there are probably better ways. I don't know the better ways yet. Mm -hmm. I've tested, you know, as, as a form, a good idea or just a simple email newsletter, but I want people to talk to each other and yeah. that's where things get, get difficult. Yeah, yeah. I ask because I've always thought about starting a community, but I know that's a whole other set of work. Right. And there's paid communities also. You can get people who are, you know, they've paid for access to a membership or something. Right. And those tend to be good as well. But there's the same kind of churn will exist there. People are, they're engaged for a month and then they're gone mm -hmm. forever. Right. And so there's always that difficulty of bringing, you know, fresh faces into the group to keep it active. And I just, I've always found the community building aspect in a digital sense to be much more difficult than, let's say, like, a local, I'm in a local podcasters group here in Nashville, and we meet up once a month. And I see people that I know, and we see each other every single month. We're mm -hmm. friends. Mm -hmm. That's a good community. It's real life. <laughs> the, the digital world is just, it's not that. And it can't be. And it's just, 
it's tough. Yeah, it is it's tough. Yeah. And speaking of that, your academy and your courses, are you doing these kind of community-based courses or is it self-serve? They're self-serve with the Facebook group attached to it. So if people want to have a community feel for it, they can. I will say this. For a long time, I did weekly or not weekly, monthly webinars with the Academy. So mm -hmm. people who are members of the Academy could tune in and actually engage with me and with others directly. Right. Mm -hmm. And the people who showed up really enjoyed it. But because it was a live recording, people's schedules don't always line up. Right. It's difficult. It's different time zones. I have members all over the world. So not everybody can be there at 7 p.m. Central in the U.S. time. And so then all of a sudden, that real tight connection was like me and six people. Like right. it was great for me and those six people, but then the rest of the community missed out on all of it. And so I ended up stopping those webinars, not because I didn't like them, but because it didn't have that impact that you intend these things to have. And so that becomes the challenge. Right. Got it. So even going forward, you're kind of keeping it asynchronous. And yeah, I mean, I think if your real goal is to like communicate, like here is how to do something, here is a lesson, like I'm going to learn this software program. Here's a course about it. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to self-serve as a consumer. I love to just be able to dig in, learn the information and get out. And then if I want to optionally go to a community to learn more, I might go to a Facebook group there as well. I think that model tends to be the preferred method for most people. There are some groups I've seen, let's say like the health and fitness groups or weight loss groups. Community is huge there. Mm -hmm. That's like the thing that's the most value in those groups mm -hmm. is the community, not the mm -hmm. courses, not the videos. So it depends on your audience and what you're trying to serve up. But I think that once you know that, you pick the model that's most effective. Got it. That's super interesting. One last question before we dive into our final five questions is you said you do a lot of interviews and I think you're going to start doing them again. When you're on someone else's podcast doing an interview, what's your main call to action? To subscribe to the show, subscribe to my okay. podcast. Like that's always every single time that I want someone to do anything. It's like, please listen to the show and subscribe to the show a billion times in a row. Like okay. that becomes the thing because it's, I know that that's going to lead to someone making the decision, do you like me or not? And if you don't, you're gone, that's fine. But mm -hmm. if you do, you're going to keep listening and then you're going to discover everything else I have to offer. And right. so for me, it's if I can get someone to like me for who I am and what I produce, basically everything else is pretty easy because then I'm just offering you more of me. Uh, and if you don't like me, then that's fine. We move <laughs> on. But like, it's just okay. how do you get that personal connection as fast as possible? Yeah. That's a great takeaway. I love that. All right, let's dive into our final five questions. Um, and these are just meant to be quick and fun. Question number one, do you collect listener emails? Listener emails. I have an email newsletter so people can subscribe to that. I, I call it the 5 a.m. club. So people can actually join that and they'll get updates on the podcast uh, through the email. So that's, that's probably as close as I would get to that. Yeah. I see. And do they subscribe on your website or? Yes, they do. Got it. Okay, cool. And, and it is a weekly email. Yeah, well, I have, my show goes out every Monday morning, and so the email comes out with the show. Got it. So you, do you just recap the show in, in the email newsletter? Yeah, essentially, it's a pitch to listen to the show and to provide more information about the episode and about you know sponsors or any deals I have going on all the time. Got yeah. it. Cool. All right, question number two. Do you promote each new episode? If so, how? So I do that through the email newsletter. I put the episode on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn not Instagram anymore because that didn't really work for me. So yes, some social channels and email. Um, and then, of course, if I have a guest on the show, I would encourage them to promote the show to their audience, which nobody ever does because nobody cares. But <laughs> I always ask. So okay. Question number three, how much time do you spend producing each episode? 
So that's changed. Thanks to my batching system, it's a mm -hmm. lot less. And I would argue that if you combine pre-production, which is about an hour, recording, about an hour, editing is about two hours, and then marketing another hour. So at least five hours per episode. And if I want to do a deep dive into content, it's more. So some episodes I'll script for three or four hours. If I, if I really you know, want to say something in a specific way, mm -hmm. I'm getting away from that now, it's a little, which is good. It's healthy for me to spend less time scripting <laughs> and more time recording. So yeah, we'll say five hours is a good starting place. Right. But when you're not scripting, I guess you still have the outline in your head. Oh yeah. Most of the time, the topics I'm discussing are ones that are top of mind for something in my life that's happening now. So it's something I can pull from because I'm currently excited about it, uh, which is my basis for what I discuss. Right. If I'm talking about something that I no longer care about, I'm not going to record that show. Like right. I want it to be something that I can like, communicate enthusiasm through the right. microphone. And if I can't do that, the show is going to suck. <laughs> I just, I won't yeah. do it. I guess I'll throw in another selfish question here. When you do the same subject for 10 years, do you ever mm. get scared that you're going to run out of material? Yes. I mean, to the degree of when I first described the podcast at the beginning, I said that I do personal development, healthy habits, productivity, early mornings, like the, the number of subtopics is pretty wide, right? I have a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a yeah. general enough show. I can discuss basically anything I care about and yeah. find an angle, find a way mm -hmm. to make it fit. So the show is, was designed on purpose to be that open. I did not want to show that pigeonholed me into a tight topic because right. I, th I thought in the beginning, I want the show to be around for a long time. And here I am just shy of 10 years and I'm still going, I still have new ideas. And to answer the question more directly about like, will you have more ideas? The more that I read, the more ideas I have, the mm -hmm. more that I consume content that's similar to, to my show and to what I care about, the more that I get ideas. And, and the real funny thing is you can take something as simple as a quote and talk about it for 30 straight minutes if you wanted to. Like you don't have to have a, a library of knowledge per episode. You can actually just keep talking and keep saying words that are smart for 20 or 30 minutes and keep it interesting. It takes some skill to get there. And that's not like BS, not filler content. This is real stuff, but you have to, you know, get to a point where you've consumed enough information, you're knowledgeable enough, you can riff for 20 minutes and have right. it sound smooth and polished and 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 helpful. And then all of it works. Right. Fair enough. And I take it you don't mind regurgitating some past topics too, right? If I bring up a past topic, I always have a new angle. That's the okay. key to that is I'm not going to just say what I already said. I want to make sure that I'm adding more to it. So well, one topic, for example, I have is a weekly review and I discuss like how to actually look at last week and like what happened last week, how are you going to improve next week? And that review process has gone through multiple iterations. So I think the mm -hmm. last one was version 3.0. And the next one I'll do 4.0 and I'll discuss how it's improved and changed and how it's better than before, because that is interesting. Like someone wants to know like, Ooh, why is it better now? Like what's different today? That's appealing as opposed to let's say it again, a million times in a row, get up <laughs> early, do it again. Like it's just, you know, you don't want to just be that guy. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, question number four, what's your favorite tool you use to produce or market your podcast? Favorite tool. I used to use a service uh, from wave W A V V. Yes. which made the audiograms like headliner mm -hmm. is a very popular one those first came out like they were super awesome everyone loved them they were amazing and now i just see another talking head on the internet and i scroll <laughs> yeah. by it i just yeah. skip it and so i actually stopped doing those mm -hmm. only because appeal was gone for me it's possible that the you know people still like them but i think the real key to that is kind of like you know it's there's trends that happen and yeah. I, I, you need to be at least knowledgeable enough of what is currently 
effective? What is helpful? What do people see and are drawn to? I'm not very trendy. I'm really bad at staying on top of trends, but I know that's how the world works. So the answer is I don't have a really great one at the moment. I wish I did, but I used to. And so I was like, okay, I've seen it work before. How do I bring that back now? Right. So I don't know. That said, what, what social media platform do you focus most on then? If you had to choose one. I am most active on Facebook and that has always been my number one platform. Hmm. I think that I have seen a lot of, of a lot more engagement recently on LinkedIn. I think that there's a much more of an audience there that's they don't want the fluff maybe of traditional social media. They want things to be more direct, more business oriented. I've seen much more interaction from LinkedIn than ever before. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's going to be a platform I'm going to invest more into going forward. A lot less on Twitter and Instagram for me is almost useless. I just, I don't have that like, here's my six pack abs today vibe. <laughs> so I don't put that out there there. Yeah, fair enough. That's cool. Last question. What's your primary call to action at the end of each of your episodes? So the call to action generally is to, well, I give an action step. And so I'll tell mm-hmm. people like, because what we just discussed, okay. go do action X. And it's, it's tailored to the content of the episode. And then I always follow that up with, and here's a show notes link so you can learn more and get more resources. And then of course, subscribe to the podcast. And here's a link for that. Uh, what I used to do was give somebody the link to join the email newsletter. I think I want to go back to doing more of that because one of the things I've given no attention to over the years has been growing my email list. And there's an opportunity that's definitely missing for me there. But uh, podcast subscriptions is always the name of the game uh, for my brand. That's cool. Well, there you have it, folks. If you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoyed Jeff Sanders, go check out jeffsanders.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter. You can subscribe to the show. And I really recommend you do because I've listened to a couple episodes and it's great. I think I'm you, you've gotten you a new listener. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Podcast Growth Hacks. If you like the show, please tell a fellow podcaster about it. This really does help keep our show going. Until the next episode, keep creating and keep growing your show.